In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. It took me three tries to get through an accounting class. The first one in junior college was taught by an American English-speaking professor when he wasn't talking about accounting. The moment he did, it was about as comprehensible as Chinese spoken backward translated by a native Russian who didn't understand Chinese. So with an already heavy course load, I dropped it. The second go was a night course for adults who had zero accounting knowledge and I'd already been using the accounting software at a publishing house enough to know that she wasn't making any sense either. So I dropped that one too. Oddly enough, it wasn't until my master's level course for my MBA that I finally had a professor who taught the mystical principles of accounting and common everyday English. Maybe it was because, like me, he had rather strong feelings about the government and government spending and a rather low opinion of both. I remember one night being rather surprised to learn that governments do not use GAAP, that's G-A-A-P, Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. These are the rules companies must follow when they give financial information. But the government has its own rules and accounting method. In fact, while it was my MBA professor's opinion and is still mine that government ought to use GAAP to run more like a business, if you use the accounting system that the government uses, you'd end up in jail. It's actually illegal for public companies to use the same accounting the government uses. Government accounting is more about transparency, allegedly, although good luck following the money. It's about accountability to public entities and stakeholders, not shareholders. It is not about whether such spending is wise or returns a profit, or even whether it is desirable or even necessary. Some politician and bureaucrat schemed it up, so it must be good. In a business, the owners, the shareholders, need to know how well the business is running and about potential profits or the looming lack of them. GAP is all about knowing how well your business activities are supporting the business, the purpose of which is to make money. Like the true cost of goods sold. How much are we really spending to do what we're doing? Are the products or services we offer returning a profit? Are we charging enough to make a profit? Or maybe we need to look for ways to cut our expenses so we can make a profit. Which is probably why the government does not want to use GAAP. Think how much socialized payments like tax credits and grants and free money and subsidies for its chosen winners impacts pricing. And the price of something directly impacts your perceived value of things like what the government does and wants you to buy. Well, with all of the underlying free cash, which isn't free because we're all paying extra to have free things, it makes it difficult to know just how much something truly costs and whether it's worth it. And that's exactly how government likes it. Let's just say that if you ran your business the way the government runs its business, you'd be out of business. But if government was run like a business, we'd have a lot more businesses. As you listen to today's guest, pay attention to the convoluted, definitely not run like a business way that the government blunders toward a desired end. Not because it makes economic sense, but because it's a means to spend money on favored industries. It's the difference between inexpensive energy independence 
which we had under Trump, and spending money we don't have on energy projects for which there are better solutions. I'd like to welcome Frank Lassay back to the show. He is an expert on energy and environmental issues and served as a Wisconsin state senator and in Governor Scott Walker's administration. He is now the president of Truth in Energy and Climate and a senior policy analyst for CFACT. Frank, it is good to talk to you again. Oh, thanks for having me on. Always love to talk about energy and climate issues. It's um, There's just so much to talk about. It's so important. It, it really is. And, you know, uh, speaking of energy, so much of uh, Western Oregon and huge areas across the country just went through some really harsh weather conditions and exceptionally cold temperatures here in Oregon, which led the nation in power outages. We had a couple hundred thousand homes without electricity, in some cases for days or even a week or more. Uh, does that kind of cold weather mentally connect, you think, with people to the point that they think that, well, maybe this global warming science isn't so scientific after all? Well, now they have they have a great answer for that. The cold is caused by the warm. Yes. I, mean, I, <laughs> I knew literally that saw that posted on Facebook. Real- they blame everything on, on global warming, yes. which is really fascinating. Um, but back in the 70s, we had similar patterns to this. And off air, when we were stop, starting, we were talking about how kind of how cold it was and how much snow there was. But um, from time to time, and I think it's based more on, and nobody really knows, sometimes the Arctic air stays at the top in the Arctic, like a, like a describe a frisbee at the top it just stays up in the arctic and we don't get all that cold down here and then there are other times for years at a time where it kind of is is very wavy pattern so you have an area that's very cold and then right next to it, an area that's very warm and, and this goes on all year long so sometimes there's a the cold arctic air uh, down during the summer and then it's not as cold as in the winter of course um, but then what happens is the media always reports where it's really hot, right. but the cold events never, never, never count. And back in the seventies, they were blaming this wavy, um, Arctic pattern, the jet stream pattern, weak jet stream, it's called on global cooling because it was cooling during the seventies. And right. now they're blaming it on global warming. It's just, you know, how equal opportunity to frighten all of us. And That's it's just right. a natural weather pattern that happens over the decades there's cycles like everything else and for thousands of years it's been warmer and colder than it is now but of course they kind of leave that out as well you know the majority of the outages were due to lines being taken out by ice and falling trees and and the like rather than transmission sites going offline but texas a couple years back had so much snow and ice that wind and solar froze and didn't generate anything did that experience give texas and other areas but not oregon of course pause to think that maybe we shouldn't become dependent on wind and solar. Sort of. Um, They're still pressing on. There's a lot of uh, wind and solar being built in Texas still. Um, They also had last year winter winter storm Elliott. That was winter storm Uri in Texas. And last year they had in the eastern part of the United States where where the same thing happened. When it gets really hot or really cold and when there's a lot of snow, uh, often there's no wind or solar or and and you have none. So you have to have full time other electricity. And that's why it adds more cost is you, you have to have both full-time electricity and then we're paying for the part-time wind and solar that can be very part-time or overproduce electricity which can be a problem which california is now running into with the overproduction of solar energy from about 1.8 million rooftop solar installations they have there during the winter when it is sunny and cool in, in southern california now in oregon in the winter it's kind of rainy and dark so you, you wouldn't get much solar power there at all during the day and none at night, of mm-hmm. course. Well, 
When you look at all these transmission lines that came down, uh, one of the things that I was thinking is that shouldn't we be working on our electrical infrastructure? And I thought that was the whole build back better thing. I thought that's what that was all about. I mean, power transmission lines and such, and and not what the Biden administration considers to be infrastructure, which is free charging stations for owners of electric vehicles who got free money to help pay for the cars. But what would or should improving our electrical infrastructure actually look like? I mean, what do we need to do most right now? Really, we we shouldn't screw it up. Why we need all this extra new uh, transmission wires is to bring the wind and solar electricity, the part-time electricity, from where it's being made, generally in the countryside, to where it's where it's used, mainly in the cities. Um, and we have to be very careful with that. But as they're adding more and more of this part-time energy, and the other part of it is closing coal plants. And Oregon isn't, you know, Oregon, Washington, uh, even California aren't so reliant on on coal electricity. But they provided about 20% coal plants did of, of the United States electricity. But states like Wisconsin, um, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio are getting 40-50% of their electricity from coal. So if you close all the coal plants, we'll be drastic short of electricity and a couple states like West Virginia and Missouri get 80 and 95 percent of their electricity from coal so and that's a big push the Biden administration is has rules uh, proposed right now that would really force the closure of all the coal plants out there and also really dramatically up the cost of of natural gas um, which provides about 43 percent of our electricity in the United States and you're fortunate out out on the west coast in the northwest uh, to have a lot of hydroelectric yes. uh, dams and and uh, you know there's a movement for a while to close down several of them and fortunately you know, it's drastically short you guys are exporting you guys in Oregon Washington are exporting a lot of that hydroelectric power to California that imports yes. 30% of their electricity yes. you know they've already started the process of removing some of the dams down there on the Klamath River and when we had investigated that years ago, what we had found out is that that is the test case in order to be able to remove them in other parts of the country. And they mentioned the snake and the Columbia as well. So uh, actually, you said it best earlier, we shouldn't screw it up. I mean, that ought to be the mandate governments everywhere. Let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, we're talking energy today coming up. We'll dig into hydrogen, green or not, and some new developments that maybe might make hydrogen more feasible. That's coming up with Frank Lassay, the president of Truth in Energy and Climate. We're talking energy today. We're doing that with Frank Lassay. He is the president of Truth in Energy and Climate. You want to go visit their website, truthinenergyandclimate.com. Just full of information, and uh, we'll link some of those up on iSpyRadio.com. Today's show is 14-04. And Frank, when you were a legislator in Wisconsin, the district that you represented had a lot of electricity generation, uh, coal, natural gas, two nuclear power plants, uh, biogas, biodigesters, wind towers, and a solar plant. So you're quite familiar with regulations and probably even uh, more so now that you're the president of Truth and Energy and Climate. Should we have a regulation that tells the full story about so-called green energy? For, for example, we have all kinds of disclaimers on any potential drug interaction. Commercials on TV have more disclaimers about the side effects of a medication than they do about the actual potential benefits. So if companies are selling things to an unwitting public um, like solar panels or, or whatnot, uh, or even to legislators, uh, shouldn't something that is green, shouldn't there be a warning label in effect that discloses the non-green aspects of this green energy, like child labor, slave labor, the oil and gas and chemicals needed to refine it, and that sort of thing? I, I mean, I know why we don't have it, but shouldn't we? 
Um, I think that's a good idea. It would help people, um, although I don't know that if that's the reason people are, are not smoking as much as they once did, and I think there's competi competition from vapes, but you know, labeling I think is a really great idea. And one part of the labeling that I think is really important um, is they call nameplate value for both wind and solar. So, for instance, if you're if you're putting up a thousand megawatt or maybe let's say a hundred a hundred megawatts of of wind power, you're really only going to get about thirty megawatts of actual power, about a third of that or less. And with solar power, it's about eighteen to twenty-two percent, depending on where you are. And of course, it's only when the wind blows or the sun shines. So people have a, a misconception in their mind, unlike a, a natural gas plant or a coal plant or a nuclear power plant, that can produce pretty close to their nameplate value and on demand. So if you're closing a 600 megawatt uh, coal plant, you can actually get 600 megawatts on demand, whereas it needs to be replaced with at least 1,800 megawatts of of, of um, uh, wind power and five times as much uh, solar power. And then again, you still have the part-time problem. You know, what's providing power when it isn't wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining? And that would be a major place to have some um, real truth in labeling Absolutely. so that people can get a grasp on that. Well, if nothing else, put it on the utility bill. So pop quiz time. This is a little fact that I have found that not a lot of people who are fighting allegedly green energy um, uh, often know but did you know that for every one ton of rare earth mined and refined, it generates 2,000 tons, 2,000 tons per ton of toxic waste, including much of it radioactive? Entire villages and countrysides in, in China have been destroyed, poisoning groundwater, killing plants and animals. The food grown there can't be eaten. Cancer rates have skyrocketed. So how about a warning label on every wind turbine or, again, on people's power bills that has a disclaimer, something like, X number of Chinese died making this product so people in America can pretend to be green. Mark, I, I love the way I love the way you think. And that's one of those other dirty secrets of wind and solar. And the vast majority of them are made in China. And the reason is, is they use a lot of coal power in China because mm -hmm. it's cheap. They don't use clean coal technology like we do here. So they're putting those solids in the air. They're polluting a lot. And um, they also use forced labor. They have more than a million people in, in prison camps. Some people call that, that slave labor, and they force them to work. And then they also then have very little environmental laws. So they, these chemicals that they're using, the hydrochloric acid, the other really bad chemicals that harm the earth, are just dumped right in the roadways or run, run in right in the ground, rivers, lakes, and streams. They don't care. It's more important for them to sell us stuff so they can make their nation stronger. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it really is an, an environmental disaster there. And that's why they can do it so cheap. Here, here we have a lot of rules and regulations and higher pay and higher energy prices because of many of the, the crazy energy um, policies that we have. Wind and solar make our electricity more expensive. It's one of the great propaganda lies that we're told regularly. They make more expensive, just like buying a second part-time car would make your car expenses a lot more expensive, even if you didn't have to put gas in it. You know, you're talking there, and I'm thinking maybe to be considered fully green, solar and wind would have to be manufactured in a uh, facility that uses exclusively solar and wind. I'm not sure how well that manufacturing company would work. Certainly, it would only work about 30% of the time. But uh, so let's shift into hydrogen. Um, wind and solar, as you said, are, are part-time generators. And as such, the amount of batteries needed to make solar and wind-generated electricity available 
24-7 and to meet peak needs uh, is just not feasible. I don't think we even have enough materials on Earth to make that. And that's just our country. So the new answer is hydrogen as, as a storage. But to get there, they want to rely on solar and wind to make hydrogen. So do the geniuses in charge not see the problem here? Well, you know, that is what's amazing is because to, to make hydrogen, first off, you need about 13 times more water than the hydrogen you're going to yield. So you, so you, you and, that, and that's a cost to purify the water. It has to be purified water. Then you take that water and you superheat it to about 2000 degrees. Then you electrocute that water. Then you super chill it to almost absolute zero, minus 400 degrees. And then you have to compress it to 10,000 PSI, which is about triple the average scuba tank. Now you've got liquid, um, very cold hydrogen that's compressed. Now you have to deal with that. So all of those processes I just mentioned are expensive, mm -hmm. difficult. You need big buildings with a lot of power, and that power has to run 24-7. It really isn't something you can turn on in the morning when the sun's shining and turn off in the afternoon or, or ramp it up for a few, for a few hours while the, the wind, wind turbines are turning. You, you need 24-7 power to do all of that. So right out of the gates, you have a problem making this green hydrogen. You need all that water, which you know precludes any place that's dry. And then you have to keep and, and use this stored product that doesn't, that you can't use the present um, natural gas pipelines. It, it storage is hard. It embrittles most metals except for aluminum. It, it, there's a lot of drawbacks to hydrogen. Hmm. Okay, um, let's go and take a break. We're talking about Truth in Energy today, and we're doing that with Frank Lassay, the president of Truth in Energy and Climate. You can visit them at truthinenergyandclimate.com. Stay with us. CFAC Policy Advisor Frank Lassay is an expert on energy and environmental issues. His articles have appeared in the Washington Examiner, Washington Post, Real Clear Energy, Town Hall, and lots more. He has been a guest on TV and radio news, and of course, this is his second appearance here on Ice My Radio. He is the president of Truth in Energy and Climate. And uh, Frank, you served as a Wisconsin state senator and in Governor Scott Walker's administration as well. And so you're very familiar with a lot of these regulations and whatnot and, and these boondoggles that government decides to put out there. And last time, we had just kind of touched a little bit on a new one here in Oregon. Oregon and I think nine other states were given a billion dollars each to put in a green hydrogen hub that will use wind and solar to generate hydrogen. I mean, what's the goal of these exactly? Is it to show that it can be done and not necessarily that it should be done? The, the actual goal is to produce hydrogen at scale and then find and develop some type of market for it. That's the other part of it. We have no market for it. Uh, California wants to um, use hydrogen for their their trucks, for you know, getting delivery drivers, semi trucks, replacing uh, diesel with hydrogen. So um, there's also they're they're experimenting with mixing it in with natural gas to send into, but many places Oregon <laughs> want to shut down natural gas pipelines into people's houses so they could use, burn it in, in there, but also to make electricity. Electricity. Uh, right now, you make um, you make hydrogen from natural gas, so it's easy to break that natural gas, um, which is CH4. So it has four hydrogen molecules, but it makes CO2 that they don't like. 
So that's the cheap process. That's the way almost all the hydrogen in the world is made right now if it isn't made from coal. And to make it from wind and solar in that process I described in the other segment is very expensive, very water intensive. And then you have this liquid frozen hydrogen you have to do something with. And, it's, and that's the other part of this. So you, you start producing this green, supposed green hydrogen and, and then what are you going to do with it? It's all to develop all of that. I, I don't know why... Um, any real business person who looks at this and says, I've got to pay for half of this, the government's going to give you half, so it's free government money for half, but uh, how do you get a profit out of all of this right. when it's far more expensive than hydrogen made from natural gas, but you, you can't, that's not green hydrogen. No. Um, you mentioned during the break there, we were talking about uh, this next segment here, and you mentioned that one of these hydrogen hubs, they're looking at placing it in the desert in Utah. Uh which is kind of an odd choice when you need water. It's it's absolutely bonkers. And the other part is, is it's going to be a green hydrogen center, they say. Um, and they only 2% of the electricity in Utah comes from wind and solar today. Most of it's actually coal. So their plan is to close a coal plant that primarily provides electricity to Los Angeles when they need it. And they want to tear that down and replace it with a smaller natural gas plant that they are somehow going to convert into a hydrogen plant someday. Mm -hmm. um, it's really fascinating to me that anyone would want to waste their money on it. And some really big companies are involved with this, and they're just wasting their shareholders' money that, that could be paid out to them, which hurts people in retirement. Well, speaking of money, you know, when it comes to government spending, why spend a billion dollars when you can spend $10 billion? seems to be the general rule there. But why not do just one of these to see if it's economically feasible and if the dreams pan out? Nowhere, you know, going back to wind and solar and, you know, kind of nowhere is there a demonstration project of any city or any area that is solely powered by wind and solar. It doesn't exist. There's no reason to do it. They, they, they don't want to do it. They don't want to talk about it. Nor is there any reasonable cost analysis. There are a lot of private think tanks, but you can't get the word out. There are a lot of articles of smart people, engineering and others who have looked at it and said, wow, this is really, really expensive because you have to way overbuild and batteries are incredibly expensive. Hydrogen is incredibly expensive. They kind of want to use it as the new age battery is one of the, the ideas. Make hydrogen and then use it to make electricity. So you're going to lose 40% upfront in cost of, of making the hydrogen we just talked about and then use it again to feed in to make your electricity when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. It's really, you know, this is their sustainable circular economy they're talking about, wildly expensive. And I remind people, we're $34 trillion in national debt. We're racking up more all the time. Our interest on our national debt is more than our defense spending now. Yes. It's yep. more than a trillion dollars. And we're throwing more, all this money we're talking about right now with wind and solar and, and subsidizing electric vehicles, EVs, it's all money we're borrowing on top of the $34 trillion that we're paying interest on. Chasing the green energy sounds very similar to trying to hunt down unicorns, um, but there have been some hydrogen developments um, recently. There was an article published on oilprice.com back in early January titled, um, New Discovery Overcomes Major Hurdle in Hydrogen Energy Economy. And it was a bit technical, but it highlighted an alleged breakthrough to make solid-state hydrogen fuel cells more feasible, including operating at room temperature, if it proves to be true. And the main point uh, was this uh, of this new discovery was that it could allow 
hydrogen storage batteries to be recharged and also stored so that the energy could then be released when needed, which is obviously a requirement for hydrogen-based energy use. Um, it uses a lanthanum hydride compound modified with strontium and oxygen to allow a high-rate conduction of hydride ions, ions at room temperature across a membrane to generate electricity. So what do you make of this? Is it a real breakthrough? Because when I hear room temperature as a condition of it, I can't help but think of the room temperature fusion discovery back in the 1980s that didn't pan out. Well, and what's interesting with this is, is first up to help you understand it and our, our listeners to understand it a little bit, the fuel cell technology is you take hydrogen very similar to what goes on with, a, with an electric battery. With an electric battery, you have to stick electricity into it, and, and then it transfers electrons back and forth, and it makes electricity that is then used to turn um, use on a battery or on an a mo electric motor. That's how an electric car works. A, um, a hydrogen fuel cell works very similar to that, but rather than charging it up with electricity, you charge it up with onboard hydrogen. So you put hydrogen into it, and then the electrons move back and forth, makes electricity, and you drive a motor. So this new technology, they've been hyping batteries, the next great battery that works even more. And, and from what I've read about it, um, we've kind of maxed out, you know, you can get maybe a 10 or a 20% better batteries out there to get a little more distance, a little more power out of an electric battery, but we're kind of maxed out. There isn't any great thing like a new computer chip that can be double better. Um, and the same thing with this hydrogen, it was interesting, I read through the article um, and really looked at it and, and the big catch on that is one, I think it's a lot of hype and can it work in the real world and one of the problems I see right out of the gates is hydrogen you have to feed into it comes in, in order to have to be able to put it in a car and have any volume of it, it's got to be that, that really super cold, almost zero, so you're taking now it has to be at room temperature, but you're going to take something that's almost zero and then you have to heat it up somehow. And then you put wow. it in there because it can't be it can't be frozen. That was the other catch that they mentioned at the final end of that article was it can never freeze. Yes. Never ever freeze. Yes. So now now in Oregon where you're pretty temperate all the time, but you just had the teens. I, if you had yeah. these cars there, they'd be destroyed. I, I saw that and I had the exact same reaction as like, well, this isn't gonna work just given what we just saw with these this winter spell. All right, let's go and take a break. Lots more to talk about with these hydrogen breakthroughs. We're doing that with Frank Lassay. He is the president of Truth in Energy and Climate. Stay with us. And welcome back. This is iSpy Radio Show. We are talking with Frank Lassay. He's the president of Truth in Energy and Climate. Their website is simply truthinenergyandclimate.com. If you want to go visit that, and you will, We'll link that up on today's show page, 1404 on iSpyRadio.com. And uh, Frank is not only president of Truth in Climate and Energy, but he's also a senior policy advisor over at CFACT, another great organization. And, you know, we've been talking about hydrogen and, and these alleged hydrogen breakthroughs. And, you know, for decades we've been hearing about hydrogen breakthroughs. And now we've got it all figured out. And then, whoops, well, it's no, it's still not feasible. So what would an actual breakthrough in hydrogen look like? I mean, are you seeing anything that might say, yeah, this might actually work? Um, shorter answer is, is no. I mean, we have something that works now, and, and hydrogen is used in the fertilizer world to make ammonia and then nitrogen fertilizer that the, the you know, climate crazed are after our food supply and fertilizer supply. Mm -hmm. 
that um, you know four billion people, half the world's population, can eat because we have fertilizers, and our food would go up dramatically, and hundreds of millions would starve without it. But they're after that as well, and we make it out of, of methane, natural gas, and that's you know carbon, C, and then four hydrogen molecules, and you you break that pretty easily, and um, it's it's a cheap process. It's about a buck a kilogram, you know, so you you've got low cost. Uh, hydrogen that way, but they don't like it because it produces CO2. And one of the proposals is to use carbon capture, they call it. That's not been done at scale anywhere in the world successfully, but they're going to force it on all of us somehow. They're building carbon capture pipelines to pipe it from one place to another to stick it in the ground and, and then hope it doesn't come back out somehow. <laughs> so we're, we're betting on this kind of crazy stuff that just adds cost. Why not use the natural gas to make electricity as we do now and use that electricity? Um, you know, we, to back up, folks, there's no climate crisis. More CO2 is good. Yes. More people are eating because the world is greening. Um, forests the size of Texas have grown back naturally over the last 40 years. So we have, and it's getting better all the time. And most plants grow better at four or five times the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere. Yes. And they grow better with more, and they tolerate heat better and dry better because they, they need less breathing holes because there's more CO2. They breathe CO2 because they need it. And that's what makes carbohydrates that we all need to eat and other animals that we may eat also need to eat. So a greener world's a better world and the plants are more tolerant to heat, the thing that they say is terrible. And all the other stuff they talk about, you know, overheating the earth and tipping points is all made up stuff to frighten people. We'd be far better off with double or triple the CO2 in the atmosphere we have now. And it'll take 200 years to double CO2, 200 years. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're creating hysteria where there should be none. Yeah, well, exactly. And this notion that it's apparently a surprise to some environmentalists that CO2 is a good thing and that plants need it. It's, it's like these environmentalists don't know how the environment actually works. Because to hear you describe how they're trying to force all of these rules and regulations on how to create green hydrogen uh, they're just going about it so much more difficult they're making it more difficult than it absolutely needs to be so well uh, it's a huge amount of waste of money and yes. we should be spending our money wisely on things that benefit people rather than wasting it on on wasteful activities that aren't going to help anybody mm -hmm. and there's a lot of wonderful things we could be doing we could you know <laughs> enhancing the shoreline protect i mean there's a, a plethora helping poor people i mean there's a yes. variety of things that we could be doing that would be far better yeah. but real quickly people don't know that water vapor is the number one biggest greenhouse gas yes. and it's 50 times more abundant than co2 and it's 10,000 times more abundant than methane, the big new bogeyman of the left. It's 10,000 times more abundant in the atmosphere than methane. And then it's 60,000 times more abundant in the atmosphere than nitrous oxide. That's what they're after for, for fertilizers because nitrous oxide is really bad, they say. So we, we shouldn't have fertilizers. It's water vapor, 60,000 times more abundant than that. And, and both those methane and, and nitrous oxide are going up tiny bits in the atmosphere, even slower than that 200 years it would take for CO2 to double. Mm. Well, um, you mentioned helping the poor. Doing things like providing electricity at lower costs would certainly help the poor, and we're doing everything but that. Uh, we've been talking about green energy and this push 
to create hydrogen is all about going green, using solar and wind to do that. If we just made hydrogen from whatever source that is the most economical, rather than using government to force this notion of green into it, and that it has to be made from wind or solar, could hydrogen be a viable option, or is it just not economically viable in the near future or ever? Well, if we made it from natural gas, it, it you know creates CO2 to do that, and it begs the question, why not just make electricity from natural gas? Um, it, it does provide, and there's hydrogen cars now. There's about 40,000, 50,000 of them in the world. I think 17,000 are in California. Um, they're trying to make some hydrogen buses. So there's some, there is some infrastructure out there with hydrogen. It has a lot of problems, and it needs a whole, a whole new network of everything to make it all work. So, you know, we could make it out of natural gas, but, you know, why? Begs the question, why? And there are, um, you know, Walmart and Amazon and other big companies are using, um, they're, they're using forklifts and things inside their warehouses that are, are hydrogen because it's very clean. It provides, it, it, when it burns, you use it, it just provides water, um, water vapor and water. And therefore, having it inside of closed building rather than using something that's diesel and provides a, you know, puts a lot of stuff into the air that people breathe, um, they're using hydrogen. Uh, also, it makes them feel good because they sound that they're green, but it really it's exporting the CO2 and the taking methane gas, natural gas, uh, and converting it to hydrogen is more expensive than using mm -hmm. the natural gas. And that also begs the question, why not use CNG? compressed natural gas that, that whole system works there's um gas stations that also sell cng that that's a whole other operation that would be far better than taking fine natural gas and turning it into hydrogen and dealing with the hydrogen is hard to deal with it blows up yeah it blows up it embrittles most metals it escapes easily it, it dissipates even within those those um uh, i don't want to call them batteries but holders uh, get you know hydrogen tanks inside of a car those hydrogen tanks, they leak from there. So you leave your car for six months, unlike leaving your gas car and almost all the gas will still be there, the hydrogen dissipates. It goes away a little by little by little. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's just one thing after another. Okay, time for a break. Uh, we will talk more with Frank Lassay. He's the president of Truth in Energy and Climate. And uh, that's what we've been talking about is the truth in energy. Stay with us. Frank Lassay is the president of Truth in Energy and Climate. He is also a senior policy analyst for CFACT and the former president of the Heartland Institute. All great organizations. Uh, you can find out more about his current organization at truthinenergyandclimate.com. And we'll put that up on today's show page 1404 on icebyradio.com. And uh, Frank, we've been talking hydrogen there and uh, these uh, alleged new developments in there that could make it uh, economically feasible. And, you know, the, the proof will be in the pudding on that one for sure. But there was another article that we came across, and uh, this was written back in November of 2023, and it says hydrogen is near a tipping point to accelerate decarbonization. And the goal here is they want to find a way to make hydrogen cheaper. And there was this little interesting uh, paragraph there. It says the U.S. Department of Energy also articulated the prominent hydrogen shot initiative in 2021. And according to this initiative, the cost of producing clean hydrogen is to come down to a dollar per kilogram by the year 2030. And, you know, we had talked regulations and disclaimers earlier. So does that dollar per kilogram figure, does that include the billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies to get there? I mean, what's the real cost? Uh, do we even have any idea what it is? 
We have no idea what it really is. And it goes back to the reality of making green hydrogen. You, you, you have to start with that 13 times more water, superheat it, electrocute it, chill it, and then compress it. And now you've got something to deal with and use. Um, all of those processes take energy. So they're, they're basically like wind and solar lying to us. Oh, they're cheaper. Well, we subsidize it, subsidize it, and subsidize it. And then they pretend as if they can do it cheaper. They, they've got to say this kind of stuff. Otherwise, if they provided the truth, people go, are you nuts? Are you super nuts? And even then, um, it's not going to be cost competitive, even with uh, three or four, three or four dollars of tax credits for every um, for every um, kilogram sold. I mean, it, it's it's just very, very expensive. And those processes take a lot of energy and that energy is expensive and you, you can't just invent it out of thin air. Yeah. Um, the other way we do it now, of course, is, you know, with natural gas, methane and um, methane reformulating, they, they call it, and that's inexpensive, but you can't use that. And if you add carbon capture to it, that doesn't work anywhere or hasn't, well, that adds a lot of costs. Um, you know, and the process, you have to start with purified clean water before you make hydrogen. So you have to purify it, and that has a cost. That's not added in there. I mean, and then the downstream of storing it and putting it someplace and using it relatively quickly before it dissipates is another cost that's there. Um, no, they, they just say this kind of stuff so they can justify what they're doing and throwing billions away. A little history, hydrogen's been around and we, you know, people discovered it and tried to work with it and use it since the 1860s. Um, we spent uh, a few, back then the, the budgets weren't so big, but a few hundred million dollars on it since um, for about, in the, over the last 40 years trying to make it viable. Europe has spent billions on it and they're, they're gonna spend you know, hundreds of billions on it, I think all under the same guise, um, but you look at it, there, there isn't a, a new different way to make it than that if you're trying to make green hydrogen. Well, you know, we've been uh, talking about experimenting and researching and trying to find these innovative ways, um, if not, <laughs> obviously not economical or practical, to make this green energy. And, you know, I, I am all for research and development. I think that's an important way that society advances, certainly how businesses advance. But the problem is, is that when government decides what gets researched and developed, it misses more often than not. And I mean, it could be that if we had just not awarded these things exclusively to these green ideas or, or environmental, all this other garbage that we spend literally hundreds of billions of dollars on, and, and especially on global warming related issues. You know, I, I just think that if we had relied on the market, it could be that coal or oil have uh, as yet undiscovered unknown qualities and possibilities or potential that we just haven't uh, discovered yet because we're not looking. And it's, it's not just coal and oil. I mean, if the government wasn't uh, dangling money only in one direction, it's hard to know what else we might have uh, uncovered by now Be because in research and, and, dis uh, and, and development, you go where the discoveries are, not where the government money is, where there may be nothing to discover. I mean, uh, shouldn't we be throwing the net wider here at this point? Well, Mark, this isn't research and development. This is trying to make production. Uh, there's a, I agree with you 100% that research and development makes tons and tons of sense. And we've made research and development in the nuclear power world, and now there are, are, they're trying to get them off the ground. Uh, small um, SMRs, small modular reactors um, with new technology. I just learned from a company in South Africa that's, that's building them um, without 
and there's one in China online that they they opened about three months ago a nuclear that doesn't use any water. Hmm. So it, it has a different. It uses helium for a cooling um, cooling system. So it doesn't need massive amounts of water, and that's highly safe. And though that's a good idea, and they have one that's working. So now you can d- duplicate it. This is just throwing money out there and hoping. I mean, it's just throwing money at the same thing with wind and solar. Does it make sense that we're subsidizing to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. wind and solar installations everywhere, folks? The, the wind and solar, both of them get 30% to build. So think if you built your house or when you buy your house and the federal government gave you 30% of it, then they give you 30% of your payments every month on it. Yep. Because yep. when they yep. sell the electricity from wind and solar, they get 30% on that. Then as they make uh, the other forms of, of generation, not so much hydroelectric, which can run all the time and it's green, but the other ones, natural gas and coal, as, as they get um, throttled back, so to speak, or run at, at more and more part-time whenever there's wind and solar working, but then have to ramp up to full-time whenever they're not, they have to charge more. And because they charge more, wind and solar can charge more, and our electric rates keep going up. Yep, yep. Yep. Well, you know, we're, we're talking about forcing subsidies on, on people and on markets. And I think the great example of that is electric vehicles. And um, uh, unfortunately, I just looked at the clock. So we're going to talk about that in the next segment. Everyone stay with us. We'll have more Frank to say. Final segment now here on the Ice Fire Radio Show. We've been talking to Frank Lassay, talking about the truth in energy, and uh, there is a lot of lack of truth in energy right now. And uh, going out of that break, there, I was just starting to say that we we've been talking about forcing subsidies, and and electric vehicles are a prime example of that, where uh, the manufacturers were getting tax breaks uh, to to get this, and sometimes open grants to do this. Billions of dollars of government money has been spent on these, and then on the other side of things. You've got consumers getting th- tens of thousands of dollars in tax credits in in order to uh, to buy these things, but as it turns out, this hasn't worked out so well in the market because Ford and GM dealers were losing so much money that they started this last year to refuse to sell anymore, and some of them were willing to give up their de- their own dealership and take a corporate buyback rather than be forced to keep losing money. So, obviously, subsidies are not always the answer for something that's simply impractical. Why can't we learn from that mistake and say? Maybe we ought to stop this green hydrogen garbage before we get going. Well, this I would describe this as soft socialism, yes. where the government, rather than owning all of the means of production, that's the socialist system that so many young people think is really great. You, you really want your government your, your, to run everything and right. run all the big stuff. Because you know, we so wouldn't efficient. have Amazon then. Um, it's it's really kind of crazy, but it's soft socialism because they're using regulations and money. Uh, to force uh, or incentivize and carrot in the stick to have companies do things that really aren't in their best interest mm-hmm. and not in the consumer's best interest. All you know, an electric vehicle saves you maybe 30 or 40 percent of the CO2 emissions. If they're really going to make their goals that they claim they need to have in order to stop this whole, you know, the, the world's climate, which you can't stop, really, folks, you can't. Um, it's not going to make a lot of difference, but it's going to make them very expensive. The used car market for electric vehicles is tanking because people don't want to buy them used. You know, they talk about putting them in poor people's neighborhoods. Really? Poor people are going to buy a car that's really expensive? Then we're, we're subsidizing them through regulations and direct subsidies. 
On the backside that we don't see, at about $50,000 a vehicle, there's a great study out on that, $50,000 a vehicle. In addition to that, they're losing money, tens of thousands of dollars on every single vehicle, everyone who's producing them. And then they're more expensive yet. Where, where does any of this make sense? No. Now, what does make sense and what people are wanting and are buying and are really growing, and, and I was just in one of our neighbors last month, and I think it's just great, is hybrid vehicles. You can make 60 to 90 hybrid batteries for hybrid vehicles. So you can make 60 to 90 hybrid vehicles for one full electric vehicle. And when the, there isn't enough electricity, you run on gas and you get huge gas mileage uh, out of it. And they have both plug-in types and they have non-plug-in types. Makes so much sense in the world. They're, they're, they make a lot of sense. That's what all of our, our, I shouldn't say all, but nearly all trains in the world are run as a hybrid system because an electric motor is more efficient. So you have a diesel engine to make electricity to feed an electric motor that doesn't need a transmission. Those are good ideas. But a pure electric car is one of the stupidest ideas ever. They're forcing it on us. Yeah, well, and the sales of these is dramatically declining. There was an article uh, I just saw here on Thursday that the sales of EVs over in Europe have started to crash. They were down by about 30,000. Um, so that's it was roughly about one-sixth the market at that point. So roughly, uh, whatever that is, 17% down. And then you've got Tesla. Uh, their sales slumped for the first time in a long time this last year. They missed their earnings estimate. Uh, they are now warning of much slower growth, and their stock tanked uh, 14% on Thursday. So I, I don't see these as viable going forward. But with the current green fad of hydrogen underway, do you think they're trying to transition out of EVs and into hydrogen? I mean, is that, you think, the next boondoggle as far as cars are concerned? Well, I, I think that's their idea, but I, I don't see how they they ramp up and produce significant amounts of green hydrogen that just aren't absolutely wildly expensive. Uh, and what's going on with the EVs is that middle class people, poor people can't buy them, they're just mm -hmm. too darn expensive. No. Poor people don't buy new cars anyway, they buy used cars. But middle class people don't really want them, they're discovering it. If they have one, they don't want two, because I know some people like that. We've got one, we love it, but we'll never get, you know, we wouldn't have both of ours electric, because we got to have a car we can drive a long distance when we need it. That's right, it's you reliable. need something dependable for your ride, don't you? Exactly. So, so they're, you know, they're a hybrid family. They got one electric and one, one gas car, um, but they aren't going to buy two. So they've tapped that market out. Then it gets worse than that because reselling them, middle class people don't want to buy them. Poor people aren't going to buy them. And then in Europe, what happens is, is when cars get old in Europe, <coughs> they sell them in Africa. Africa doesn't have the electric infrastructure to have electric vehicles there at all. So when you have a used electric vehicle after it gets 10 or 12 years old, if the battery hasn't worn out or you have to replace it at ten dollars to $20,000, now what do you do? You, you don't have another place to sell it. So they're going to have even less resale value. Yeah. Well, I know that during this most recent snowstorm, something like 9,000 electric vehicles had to be uh, towed because they'd been abandoned, not because they'd crashed or slid off the road. They just uh, ran out of juice. And, and I certainly know that people couldn't use the heaters in their own car for fear it wouldn't keep enough charge to get home. So I, I, I think people are starting to look at that and say, I don't think an EV is for me. So anyway, Frank, uh, we still have lots more to talk about. Uh, we look forward to having you get on sometime in the near future. 
Oh, that's great. Love to be back on. Check out my website, folks, uh, truthandenergyandclimate.com, and we have a weekly email newsletter. You can sign up on that uh, through the website and appreciate it. You need to get the truth out there. There's so much that we are being told, and it's propaganda. It just isn't true. Absolutely. There are a ton of links for you on today's show page, 14-04, on iSpyRadio.com to help you learn the truth about green energy. Wouldn't it be great to know the truth about just how much all this free stuff costs? or exactly how much green energy will end up costing. And wouldn't it be truly great if government bureaucrats who lie to the public could be charged with a crime? And when did that become okay? Hold them accountable. Don't be silent, because as we say every week, the best information does you no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.